At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things you can actually buy that will help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This is the reason why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered's saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation, instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current core setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. If you're like me, you spend lots of time poring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times to hunt will be. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and white-tailed deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store. Use the promo code TRUTH to save some money and download it today. Welcome to the Truth From A Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 282. Today we are talking about survival and how to keep yourself alive when shit gets western. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Going to just give you the heads up that we are going to keep this up front stupid short today because uh, I'm actually recording this thing and getting thing, all things prepared uh, before work, uh, on the morning before work, because truthfully, I'm getting ready to head out uh, for the turkey camp uh, in the big woods, hunting mountain birds this weekend with uh, Chad Sylvester. Uh, we'll be hanging. He's coming in from Ohio, you know him, you love him, uh, my road dog, um, and my buddy Aaron Hepler is going to be uh, is going to be with us as well. So packing up the hoopty trailer, it's pretty much packed up. I got to hook the truck up, uh, finish my day at work, and then be headed out for uh, like four days of four days of outdoor fun. You know, Pennsylvania, you can only really hunt till noon, uh, beginning of uh, gobbler season. 
So we'll do that and do some scouting uh, in the time that we are not hunting. So it's going to be a fun-filled weekend. Going to hopefully get a lot of work done. Hopefully we're going to get some birds on the ground. And, uh, yeah, just have some good old-fashioned uh, hoopty trailer travel hunting fun. So with that, we're going to go ahead and just jump into today's podcast. Have a really cool show for you guys today. It's one that I've been wanting to do for a while. And hopefully I'll be able to do more shows like this as we're in kind of like the off-season transition period. Always going to be deer hunting related. Always have some type of tie-in to hunting. Um, but today, taking a little bit of a detour, and we're talking with uh, Kevin Estella, uh, who is the director of training for Fieldcraft Survival. If you don't know what Fieldcraft Survival is, um, it's a super uh, rad group of guys. I learned of it through <clears throat> the Joe Rogan podcast. Actually, the the CEO or the owner, Mike Glover, was on it. Uh, it's owned by a guy who's a special operator or special forces um, for years, and I think he was a contracted CIA guy. Uh, as well, spent a lot of time overseas and just kind of always in situations where, you know, uh, Ish has the opportunity to hit the fan frequently. Um, and so with that, you know, he started this company about, you know, preparedness. And and I don't really know the genesis of it as far as where they kind of focus their efforts at the beginning. But it ranges everything from very practical stuff that every any person, even whether they're into hunting, whether they're into survival or not, should kind of pay attention to and learn some of the some of the basics. Um all the way up to kind of like tactical, urban preparedness, et cetera, et cetera. Kevin's kind of area of expertise is in uh, survival and in bushcrafting. Uh, and he kind of goes through the story as to how he kind of got into that. But they also, at you know, Fieldcraft Survival, they have classes on kind of, uh, you know, everyday carry kind of preparedness, um, kind of, I don't want to say catastrophe or tragedy preparedness, you know, it might be one way to put it. I think their motto or their approach, I don't want to say their motto because I don't want to speak for them, but their approach is, is that, you know, re- reality is, is that a dire situation is just always kind of just around the corner, potentially. Don't want to scare people, of course, but there's always the possibility of something to go wrong. Something as simple as you're driving in the winter um, and you run out of gas somewhere and you're 20 miles from a gas station and you don't have the correct clothing and you're on a road that doesn't get a lot of traffic, what do you do? A lot of people in that situation could, it could be a life or death situation for them, depending on if how prepared they are or, or aren't. And so they kind of go to that base level, even where it's just like the normal person, what types of things should you be thinking about and how can you prepare yourself to kind of be ready to um, survive a situation that, that may, uh, that may arise. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and jump into today's show. Make sure you're checking out SkullBrewCoffee.com. Pick yourself up some coffee. Make sure you head to the merch tab on the TruthFromTheStand.com website. Pick yourself up some swag. And with that, we're going to jump into the chat with Kevin Estella. And as always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today we're taking a little bit of a different uh, direction. We're still going to talk hunting. It's not going to be specifically deer hunting, but there's an area in and around hunting, wilderness, and outdoors in general that I've been kind of interested in. And uh, I, I learned of uh, these folks at Fieldcraft Survival, actually through the Joe Rogan podcast, and, and I believe Mike Glover was the one who who was on it. And so I just kind of started going down the wormhole or the rabbit hole of like the folks who who do work uh, with Fieldcraft Survival. And I came across a fellow who I come to kind of find out, I believe he originally is from Pennsylvania, has some Pennsylvania blood in him somewhere. And I'm talking about no other than the director of training at Fieldcraft Survival. He's a podcaster and the author of 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. And this is another, another, none other, words are hard today, Kevin Estella. What's going on, man? Hey, I'm doing just fine over here, man. I'm, I'm in that wormhole, you know? Although I don't know if I'd, I'd want to consider, you know, the guys over here worms. Uh, 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll tell you, there, there's definitely a wormhole. There's a rabbit hole you can run down when you start looking at all the different things that we do. Um, and you're close. Uh, my girlfriend's in Pennsylvania. Okay. But I'm from Connecticut, and I've spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania. So there you go. I, I know those woods well. Nice, nice. Yeah, I knew you were from the East Coast somewhere, and I couldn't remember where I read it. Well, I was reading your book. I, I'm about 60 to 70 pages into it, and I remembered seeing Connecticut in there, but I couldn't remember if you were from Connecticut or if like your training took place in Connecticut or, or whatever the case was. But I knew you were an East Coaster at heart. How's the, uh, how's the transition been out West? Good? Uh, so, so far, I've been here for about 16 months, mm-hmm. and I will say that the best part of the whole transition is just becoming more physically capable. I mean, I grew up at less than a thousand feet sea level for, for elevation. And, you know, for a good period of my life, I, I lived very close to the coastline at less than 300. So oh, wow. when we moved out here to Utah and, you know, where I was living for the first year out here was at like 5,500. And then, <laughs> you know, where my work is around, you know, six grand. Uh, it definitely was a, a, a crazy, crazy adjustment because, you know, I consider myself to be in decent shape. I mean, I'm, I'm a jujitsu practitioner. I, I, I've been an athlete my whole life, but then to walk up a flight of stairs here and <laughs> to lose it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, you figure yourself like this shouldn't be happening. Like altitude was my kryptonite, but the, now I'm more adjusted to it. And when I do go back to the East coast, I feel like freaking Superman because <laughs> the air is so thick. So, uh, the adjustment out here has been good. There's no, uh, there's no moisture in the air it's all dry so even when it's uh even when it's like 15 degrees out on the east coast it would feel like it was like 45 and people out here are looking at me like why is this guy walking around with with just a t-shirt on and it's like there's no moisture you know so right. it's it's been good it's been real good nice yeah i can uh <clears throat> i can uh, attest the whole not to the significance of living in it in, you know in perpetuity but you know, when I would hunt out West, you know, my first trip I was in, uh, Montana and I, I like to work out as well, you know, get up in the morning, throw kettlebells around. And I actually, we, maybe we go down this wormhole too at some point, but I took my first BJJ class last night, actually. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, not to kind of make a hard pivot, but it's been one of those things that's been on my list to do for a long time. Um, just I grew up grappling, you know, I wrestled growing up and I still love the sport of like folk style and freestyle wrestling. Like I'm one of those nerds that watches all like the world tournaments. I watch all like the Olympic trial tournaments. I watch the Olympics. Like I watch all the NCAA tournaments. I watch Penn state dual meet matches. Like I'm a nerd for it. And I don't know. I just, I love the art of grappling and just and wrestling and MMA or not MMA, but BJJ was one of those things I wanted to get into and just like the overall training aspect of it. And like the technique, you know, that's, I think that was the thing. I think as I got older and was watching folk style and freestyle wrestling was watching two really high level athletes go at it where there's not really a difference in terms of like their capabilities necessarily. The difference was who was going to execute the techniques. And once I really gained an appreciation for that, that was when my appreciation for BJJ kind of went through the roof. Cause I was like, man, that is just a lot of technique and technical kind of positioning and maneuvering and stuff like that and strategy and setup and, and, and it just kind of tickled my fancy. And so I finally have a job where I work remotely. Uh, so my commute is nothing. And there's a gym that's two miles away from my house. And so I was like, done. I was like, now that I don't have a commute, I can get to the gym on time. I can take classes. So took the first class last night and I'm like, I'm already just like Jones and to get back to the gym. Yeah, it's gotta be, a, it's gotta be a, a little bit of a departure for you because, you know, wrestlers like playing 
uh, you know, like, like playing the top and like being chest down, right? Like yeah. a lot of, a lot of pressure in BJJ. It's the total opposite. I mean, granted, I like playing the top two in BJJ, but I'm more of a side control player. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the bread and butter of Brazilian jiu-jitsu is the guard. If you're not pulling guard, you're not doing jiu-jitsu. So to tell a wrestler, Hey, you've got to get comfortable around your back that it, it's like saying, you know, Hey, go around and kiss your sister on the mouth. Like, it's just not, <laughs> natural. it's not natural for a wrestler, but right. I mean, I'll tell you, if you can wrestle, then you can make the transition really, really easily um, because the concepts are all the same, mm-hmm. pressure, timing. And and then the other thing people don't understand is you have to have confidence in the moves or else you're not going to pull them off. It's like yeah. if you tell someone, hey, do a backflip, but hesitate, you know, you'll never do a backflip. <laughs> if you try getting an armbar on someone, if you try shooting your legs up to, to pull off a um a triangle choke and you're not confident in the move, they're going to counter it. You know what I mean? So right. it's, uh, it's something that I think is very, very uh, similar. And I think, yeah, you're going to stick with it and love it. Yeah. It's a, uh, and you're hundred percent right. Like, so like there was just a, a sense of familiarity that kind of came back really quick in terms of just like feeling pressure. Cause I'm, I'm a feel person. Like I could tell whenever, you know, the guy, uh, the instructor coach, he was giving me instruction and then he would, you know, kind of get on me and kind of, you know, go through whatever, whatever the move, the move was last night that he was working on with me. And I could feel the pressure he was putting on me at certain points. And I could immediately tell whenever I was doing it incorrectly because I, I didn't feel the same pressure like that he was applying to me, you know what I mean? And so yeah. I could quickly kind of like recalibrate and go, oh, okay, this is what I did wrong. I need to make sure I keep pressure here. I need to make sure I, I shift my, my hips this way. And it just, I don't know. It felt natural. It felt like uh, it just felt right. I'll put it that way. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm stoked for, it. and it kind of goes along with the idea of being prepared. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to get into it, um, a secondary kind of reason, other one, other, other than just, I thought I would really be interested is I want to get my daughter into it. She's 13. Um, mm-hmm. and I just think it'd be really, you know, my preamble to her was, uh, you're going to be out of the house in the next four to five years. And I want to make sure that you're prepared to handle yourself. If something came down to a physical situation, be it with a, another woman, a man or, or whatever. Um, I was like, and I don't feel like I'm doing my duty unless I have you, at least unless you have like some base concepts and base ability to be able to, to defend yourself. And so that was kind yeah. of the other precipice for me to, to get involved. Yeah. And I'm glad that you're thinking that way already. There are a lot of parents that don't start thinking about personal protection for their kids until it's too late. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a hard, uh, truth to admit, but I'll tell parents that let things happen to their kids without preparing them. Like you allowed that. Yeah. You know, but parents don't want to don't want to say that because you know no one wants to admit that they haven't succeeded in something, especially when it comes to something so personal as their kid. But you have from the moment that kid is born until they leave the nest to get them ready. And BJJ is great for for girls. Don't get me wrong; I think it's great for building confidence. Um, but I would always tell you uh, and tell anyone if you really want to equip anyone of any size to really level the playing field, you got to get into weapons forms and. You know, it's it's wild for me to say that at a a seminar with a whole bunch of kids um, and parents. I'd be like, yeah, by the way, get your kids weapons. You know, teach them how to use them. But but there really is no denying like there's certain there's certain parts of the body that are very responsive to feeling steel. So uh, you know, kids can learn them pretty quickly, and immediately they can become a threat. Someone that's a high level grappler, striker, or whatever, if they uh, if they present the blade correctly. So right. 
that's a whole, that's a whole other topic. I know yeah. we're talking about survival, and we're already off on a self defense combatives rant, but right. you know, it all, it all ties in. Yeah, it all ties into just general general preparedness, and and um, I like that it's the old concept of don't bring a knife to a, a karate fight or whatever the case is, right? Or don't bring karate to a knife fight. I guess is a better way to say it, right? Yeah, um, I've heard people say I've heard people say that, and it's like once you realize that there's no such thing as a gunfight, a knife fight, a fist fight, it's just strictly fighting. And at any time, any one of those uh, disciplines can present itself. Then you realize, wow, I have to be ready for all those disciplines. Right. You know? And then there, there are times where, you know, people have said to me, they're like, Oh, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. I'm like, well, what if you have a large goose gun in the back of a cab and I have a straight razor. Right. Um, and, and they're like, well, well, you know, that's not, I'm like, well, you're not using your imagination. All right. right. Mm-hmm. Context is everything, so, right? <laughs> yeah. So just call it a fight and let's be good. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Well, that's a good kind of transition into just kind of talking about, you know, at a base level, what field craft survival is for anyone out there who doesn't know what it is, you know, who you guys sure. are and, and what you guys do. If you can kind of give us the, the cliff notes version of that. So people are kind of grounded. Yeah, so uh, our company was was created in 2016. Mike Lover is a former Green Beret and CIA contractor. Uh, he was overseas, and he realized that there was a need to prepare citizens for worst-case scenarios, prepare citizens for medical emergencies, and provide them training. So over the years, Fieldcraft has morphed from just being uh, a firearms-based uh, company to now providing overlanding training, as well as first aid training, survival training. Uh, We have a whole suite of products that are meant for your vehicle, everyday carry items and things like that, that we sell. And then we do a lot of media and that's something else that people forget is, you know, we have really three legs that we stand on training products and media. So we're constantly, constantly putting out content on social media, some of it entertaining, but mostly educational and we have a lot of different subject matter experts that work for the company uh, and the company has expanded. So it's not just pistol carbine anymore. It's pistol carbine precision long rifle. And then it's not just, uh, you know, traditional firearms training. Now we're using simunitions pistols and doing more decision-making and scenario-based training. Uh, so the company has really grown uh, over the past six years and it continues to grow to this day. Yeah. Now you guys do a great job of putting out just, digestible content that's straight to the straight to the point um i think that's the one thing i even if you just kind of listen to the podcast and, and take in the free content that you guys kind of deliver it's uh it's packed with great information if people did nothing else other than that they would be uh way ahead of where they're at now in terms of understanding how to how to use a weapon or how to you know what what knives might be most applicable in certain situations or what you know handguns might be most applicable in certain certain situations or you know, what might go into a go bag or whatever the case is, like you guys just do a really good job of uh, simplifying things for the lay person. Well, thank you. You know, and we like saying, uh, especially out of the North Carolina branch, because we have two offices, Utah and North Carolina. uh, But one of the quotes that we have at the North Carolina branch is real skills for real people. Mm. Um, Because a lot of people will see various training companies and you'll see the guy that's all decked out in multi-cam and has full sleeves and you know, looks like he can bench press, you know, 500 pounds with one arm. And everyone says, well, that that's not me. That couldn't be me. Well, we are presenting skills by some very highly trained instructors that every person can learn from and, and apply in their own way. So, you know, when you take a scenarios based class and the main skill is de-escalation, well, you don't need to be a muscle bound, you know, 
uh, former operator to to de-escalate, but you can apply the concepts and you could be someone who might be smaller stature, you know? So a lot of the stuff that we're, we're presenting might have that cool factor, but if you boil it all down, it's really there for, for the average person, right? Real skills for real people. Right. Right. It's, you know, just, I'm just thinking of a, <clears throat> I forget what podcast it was. I think I was listening to Jocko talk about something and, and he was talking basically about a conflict, you know, and that he's a big muscle bound dude and, you know, awesome at, at Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and former CEO and all this stuff. And he was like his first <laughs> rule of thumb is to not have a fight or not have a conflict. If I can run away, right. I will, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just to listen to someone who is that kind of accomplished, you know, and you think of it as a badass that his first order of business is how do I get out of the conflict? You know, how do I just remove it and be done with it altogether? And then there's no, there's no negative consequence necessarily from it. Um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Like, I don't think people think about that when they're challenged. I think they think about the response versus the management of the situation. Yeah. If you, if you look at like ancient warrior philosophy, right? You look at the art of war, Sun Tzu, he said, some ground should not be contested. Some battles should not be fought. And you know, when you put on a pistol or you put on a blade or you learn all these combative skills that I will never say will make your hands registered weapons, but let's just say that you become very capable more than the average person. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not going to use those skills to de-escalate or to solve everything, right? Like if you just go around with your pistol and you get ticked off at someone who's driving, well, now you didn't just end their life, you ended yours. And you got to think about the second and the third and the fourth order of effects. It's like, all right, I used my awesome, you know, striking skills to de-escalate something that happened in a bar. Well, it got caught on camera and some crafty lawyer decided that I used too much martial arts capability and skills. And I didn't just stop the fight. I put this guy into the hospital. Well, now I have to pay legal bills. And now my employer got word of it. And now I'm on suspension. And now, you know, my girlfriend or my wife or my kids are feeling like, People don't think about the second, third, and fourth order of effects. And Jocko is absolutely right. You know, if you have to run away or if you can run away, what is the worst possible secondary effect? Some guy's going to call you a coward. Guess what? Sticks and stones. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I would rather be called a coward every single day and twice on Sundays than have to give up my life savings to get out of jail because I did what I felt was right, even though a jury of my peers thought it was wrong. Right. right. <laughs> you know, so I'll yeah. Pass. yeah, exactly, man. I want to, I want to pivot. Cause I know, you know, i like I said, I've been reading your book and the way I came, came to, I guess, know, know you was really more so through like bushcraft, uh, and, mm -hmm. sur and survival training in, in general. So I guess, let me ask you first, how did you, how did you kind of find your way into these two, these two realms? Okay. So, um, the story really starts with my my father in the Philippines. Um, you know, to understand me, you have to understand his history. So my dad was born in 1941, January 4th, 1941, in the Philippines, and that was right uh, when the Japanese Imperial Army decided that they were going to invade the Philippines. So my grandfather moved uh, the family into the jungle, and they lived there from 1941 until 1945. So my dad grew up in the Philippines, and you know, he lived in a war-torn country. He survived in the jungle for the first few years of his life and then eventually came to the United States, met my mom. They had three kids. I'm the youngest of three. And I, as a kid, I wanted to hear more about the survival life that my dad had. And we'd go in the backyard and we'd set up these little box traps and sit at the back door and pull the string on the, on the stick that dropped the trap on top of the possum. And we'd go out there and look at the possum, you know? So I did all this 
outdoorsy stuff with my dad when I was a kid, but like a lot of the listeners probably did with their father, right? Like your right. first teacher is probably your dad. So around like five or six, I asked my dad, I'm like, yeah, but you know, what's this hiking thing? You know, and he took me to the Barnes Nature Center in my hometown. We went hiking and that kind of like really got the things going in my, in my head and in my heart. And I was like, I love this. So I started, you know, putting booklets of matches in my backpack, places where my teachers wouldn't find them. And I started like getting into this like preparedness mindset. And in my teenage years, I found all these books that had survival stuff in there and, you know, early military manuals. And I was like, damn, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. So my dad always was, was very willing to take me out and, and like go and get my, my junior hunting license and, and take me fishing and show me all this stuff. So over the years, I just developed more and more of a passion for it. And then, uh, you know, at some point, when I was a teenager, I started working at an outdoor sporting goods store, and that's where I got like the technical knowledge of, of all this stuff. Um, and then in my mid twenties, I was like, well, or early twenties, I was like, let me see if I can formalize my outdoor education and see if what my dad taught me was legit. So all those years of training with my dad and, and reading books and working at you know the sporting goods store and being a canoeing and kayaking instructor and guiding canoe trips, I started testing myself at these schools like. Main primitive skills school, Jack Mountain Bushcraft. And then I eventually met uh, my late mentor, Marty, uh, at an event in North Carolina. I took a class with him. A year later, he says, Hey, I want you to come back. I took a class, I came back to his basic survival class and he introduced me to the class as one of his assistant instructors. So I got started working there. And then, you know, I started uh, training in Filipino martial arts, met another mentor there. And over the years, it just kept going and going. I started writing for magazines doing product testing and i mean it was basically on a path uh that just kept building momentum and i haven't been able to stop it and not like i want to um but eventually during covid mike lover the owner of the company here uh he read my book he podcasted me and then he offered me a job and i left 14 years of teaching at a public high school um and i came out to utah and the rest is history that's all. It sounds almost like it chose you <laughs> versus you choosing it. Oh, dude, I will put it this way. Like, granted, I love teaching at the high school. I love the idea of sharing historical concepts with kids, making them better writers. But there's no doubt about it. I showed up to the high school many days with like a black eye or I'd have bruised forearms from <laughs> combatives. Or the kids would ask like, oh, what'd you do this weekend? And I was like, well, I was camping in the Adirondacks. And I was like, yeah, but it was negative 10. I'm like, your point. You know, what, right. what are you talking about? Like, so the whole time I was doing that, I was still doing everything else. And my friends always said, at some point, the teaching is going to be overshadowed by all the other stuff. And that's exactly what happened. Right, right. Well, talk to me, I guess, a little bit about like, you know, because as I was reading, I think it was at the very beginning of the book, you, you mentioned a couple of different things that were, I guess, formative, maybe is one way to kind of phrase it. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about, and I haven't gotten super deep in the books. So I'm not sure how, if, if it's mentioned later, but you, you talked a little bit at the beginning about kind of, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to say it, like mental capacity or mental strength or mental acuity. I don't remember exactly how you framed it, but how much of survival, you know, and preparedness and things of that nature are, uh, your ability to kind of control your emotions and or your ability to kind of uh, be mentally strong or, or mentally sharp to, to, to not let the moment kind of get away from you. Oh, it, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly important. And yet it is the section of most survival books that the average reader will skip over to get to the cool 
photos of knives being used or fires being built. Right. If you do not have a strong mindset, then you are setting yourself up for failure. Uh, you know, one of the, the concepts that I talk about in my book is the concept of readiness. And readiness is something that is often misunderstood. Um, readiness is the sum total of awareness, preparedness, and willingness. And this comes from my, my late mentor, Chris Syok. Uh, it's called the Syok Readiness Formula. And it's very easily understood as, well, awareness is having an understanding. Awareness is having that alertness. Awareness is uh, being you know, tapped into your environment and recognizing what's happening around you. Preparedness is not just the gear that you throw in your pockets and you attach to your belt or you throw in your backpack. Preparedness is also the skill sets that you develop, right? If you give a, a skilled uh, carver a knife, they could carve pretty much anything because they're carrying that skill set with them in their head. Um, and then the last thing is willingness. And willingness is really your level of commitment to a task. So there are people out there that will say, I'm, I'm totally ready. And they might be aware and prepared, but they're not willing. And for the hunters that are listening, you probably know guys who have gone and they've practiced with their, their archery equipment, they've practiced with their rifle equipment. And the first time they go out, maybe this is a younger kid, they get an animal in their sights and they do not pull the trigger or, or let that arrow fly because they you know, have that moment of hesitation. Well, they weren't willing to trust their training. Mm -hmm. So therefore they weren't ready to take that shot. Um, there are folks out there who are prepared and willing, but they're not aware. And we all know hunters that love going to hunting camp and they might have a few drinks around the fire or around the wood stove at night. And then the next morning, they're definitely not ready to go out because they're still drunk, right? I would not say that they're ready to hunt. Um, and then there are folks out there who are aware and willing, but they're not prepared. There are people probably listening right now saying, wow, this guy, you know, he said some really interesting stuff about combatives, uh, but it will never happen to me. You know, right. so they're not willing to train or if it's survival. Oh, you know, he said a couple things uh, in a past podcast about vehicles breaking down. Uh, but my car is brand new. It'll never break down. So they're not willing to prepare their vehicle with what's needed to get them out of an emergency. So they can't be ready either. So all of that comes from a correct mindset. All of that recognition of what is ready comes from letting your mind operate properly um, and not polluting your mind. Right. Not. Uh, relying on false hope or, or fake ideas here, but I mean, just buckling down on on what's true and and listening to 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 the to these ideas that you know it's hard to deny when something is truthful. So uh, right. So I'd say that the mind and the correct mindset is absolutely absolutely vital, uh, and you cannot simply rely on gear, uh, and you cannot simply rely on on grit. You have to have the the total of all three of those to be truly ready. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, you know, when you talk about gear, cause you know, whether you're talking about hunters or, I mean, almost anything at, the, at this point, like gear is always at the kind of the, the forefront. People like, like their trinkets, you know, if you will. And, oh, for sure. You know, and I know, you know, there's always something new in the hunting industry that comes out. That's like, Oh, this is the newest whiz bang thing. that will kill more deer or more elk than the, than the last thing that, that you saw. And the reality is, is that the only thing that's going to kill more elk or more deer is your willingness to go find them, hunt them down and do your homework and have a strategy in place to make it happen. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And it, it's, you're, you're kind of pointing out like the idea of, of, of willingness to me, it's, you know, just for my, me personally, I have to be willing every off season to put in all the work in order to give myself the opportunities that I hope to have when the fall rolls around. If right. I, if I don't, 
I can't have an expectation of, of any grant, you know, of any grant outcome, you know, cause I haven't done the work, you know? Um, and so I just, I like the idea of, of readiness, um, you know, cause I think it kind of speaks to having all those factors kind of in place. It's not just grit. It's not just your, your capability or whatever. It's, it's all three of those things kind of lined up saying that like, I've done all the work I'm now ready to execute. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Right. And you know, I, I like what you said right there about the off season. You know, when we teach a, a hunter prep class here, one of the questions that I ask my, my students, I say, when does hunting season begin? And they, they look at me and they're like, well, it varies from state to state or, oh, I'd have to check the, the guidebook. Some might even pull it up on their phone. And I'm like, does it ever end? You know? And then yeah. they're like, oh, that's a great way to look at it. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, because if you want to be successful next season, the time to prepare is right now. Yeah. The time to prepare is when you have the, the buildup and you've got that freedom to get things done before it's too late. So yeah, it, that's the absolute correct way to, to view it. Um, and you're setting yourself up for success when you do. Yeah. All the, all the folks, you know, have been doing this podcast for forever, like I don't know, cl- getting close to like 300 episodes and all the killers that I've had on, they all kill their deer between the months of like February and April. <laughs> mm-hmm. They just execute it and send the arrow, you know, sometime between, you know, October and December. Yes. You, you, yes. Know, you know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the reality of it. Um, and once people kind of grasp that, you know, and it's really just, you know, Intel, Intel, Intel at all times, scouting, 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 seeing new stuff, seeing, seeing, you know, brand new things and building your, your database essentially. Um, so you can make decisions really quickly. Um, you know, that once you're able to do those types of things, it's that, that's when I see and talk to guys who are just next level where it's like, they'll get it done multiple times in one year in multiple States on all DIY, DIY hunts, you know, right. Right. You know, and those guys are operating at like the Navy seal level of bow hunting, if you will. Yeah. I mean, like I'm good friends with Aaron Snyder, uh, from Kafaro. And if you watch that guy's, that, that guy's workout routine, I mean, he's getting after it every single day. Like I always say that work is a distraction for him. You know, like his, right. his full-time job is, is killing animals, ventilating that man, you know, he does a really good job. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's how you can approach anything. Like, you know, yeah. like you can wake up late, you can do a Jocko and wake up at four fifteen and take a picture of your, your watch every day. That's awesome. I love that because you're doing things when other people aren't, yeah. you know, and that is put, that's automatically puts you in a new class, a new category above people who are okay with being average, you know, like, yeah. You know, getting back to the combative thing again, people always say, well, you know, the average thing. I'm like, do you like training to be average? You know, and people hate that expression because if you only train to be average, is it really saying much? Like you are putting yourself on a level playing field with everyone else. I would rather train to be above average right. and give myself an advantage. Yes. You know? Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious, man, you know, I think you said something a little earlier and I think it kind of hit hinted toward this, but, you know, a lot of people when they think of, you know, they think something bad, you know, whatever the case might be, it'll, it'll never happen to them. Right. That's kind of always the, the thing that you hear in hindsight of when something bad has happened, I never thought it would happen to me. Right. Right. So 
why should people be thinking of survival training as something that's practical that they should have a grasp of? Because I think a lot of people have this kind of misunderstanding, even hunters, right? I mean, I think we would all be surprised as to how many hunters go out on even kind of tough hunts, you know what I mean? Or challenging hunts with, you know, very, very, you know, limited kind of preparation. I'm just curious, you know, you know, why people should be thinking about, you know, survival training as something that's practical that they should have a grasp of across the, I guess, the, the breadth of their life, regardless of if, if it's like their personal every day, or if it's like the challenging kind of adventurous things they like to enjoy as, as hobbies. Well, you know, I will put it this way. A lot of, uh, a lot of folks out there, we said it already, they love the gadgets and I'm a gadget guy myself. I, I like having, you know, cool stuff on me. I like having tools because that's what separates us from animals. You know, mm-hmm. I like having a Swiss army knife in my pocket because I'd rather cut things with that than use my teeth or my nails. Um, you know, but as much as I love gear, I also know that gear can fail. I know that it's a, it's another, uh, link in the chain that could potentially fail. So the survival skills, you can look at them from a lot of different perspectives. One is what happened. It's what you fall back on when gear fails, you know, and that's why I insisted that my book was skills based and not gear based. Um, but then you can also look at it from a, uh, a fortitude perspective, right? Like if you learn to do things that are very, very difficult, when something presents itself that might be challenging, you're going to say, this isn't as hard as training. And, you know, there's that old expression, uh, train hard, fight easy. Well, the same thing goes with hunting prep, right? If you take some very difficult shots in, in preparation for the hunt, when an easy shot shows up, you're not even going to hesitate. You're going to be like, oh my God, I've done this before. Yeah. Um, the other aspect too is just, you know, how much of an asset do you want to be to the people around you? You might not be the person that gets into an emergency, but someone in your hunting party might be. And when that scenario presents itself, you can either be part of the problem or part of the solution. There really is no in between. You know, even if you're in the way, guess what? You're part of the problem. <laughs> you know? Right. So the way I look at it is the survival training, it really teaches you a lot about yourself. It teaches you about the capability of the gear that you carry. It teaches you about the range, your max range that you can have. Uh, and by range, I mean, how far are you willing to operate outside of your, your vehicle, your, your cabin, your hunting camp, whatever, you know, and basically you, you're learning more about yourself, which gets you more in tune with the environment, which ultimately that's what you're doing as a hunter. You are part, you're becoming part of the environment. You're not just a visitor, you know? So I look at it from a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different viewpoints. And when someone says, oh, that could never happen to me, I'm like, yes, it could. Right. 100%. You're lying to yourself. Yeah. And again, I hit them with that truth bomb. And it's like, you know, what? a lot of people fall out of tree stands. A yeah. lot of people twist their ankle. A lot of people cut their fingers on broadheads. Uh, you think you're going to always live in that bubble of safety? Probably not. Yeah. You know, something, yeah. something could happen. Yeah. I mean, there's two things came to mind. I mean, well, one was I just, my buddy and I have, we hunt a lot together and we just kind of have a general saying that we you know when we're getting our, our gear together is that, have one, have none, have two, have one. That's kind of like always our, our mantra, right? And it's like, even if I'm just hunting around home somewhere, I still always carry a lighter and a second way to make a fire. Like that's just, I don't know. I just always do. I've done it since I was a kid. Um, and then the whole idea of you don't need to be far away for something kind of, you know, uh, ridiculous to happen. I'm thinking back to my two uncles hunting together when I was a kid. I mean, they were literally hunting on our, our back 40 and my uncle, they were still hunting. 
together. I think they actually met up. So I don't know how they got together, but they were together. And my uncle had his, uh, an arrow knocked in his bow and my uncle in front of him stopped. And my other uncle was kind of looking like thought he saw something move or whatever and was continuing to walk and ran the arrow into the back of his leg. Oh yeah. You know, and it got, it got to be a pretty dire situation pretty quick. You know, I mean, he, he lived, you know, he lost a fair amount of blood, had to get stitched up and, you know, it was okay. But I mean, he wasn't that far from home and if they weren't that close to the house, you know, and that close to like, to my other uncle being able to go get his truck and, and get him out and get him to the hospital, it would have gotten real serious real quick. Um, you know, and it's just one of those things where you would never thought in a million years that one of them would have got hurt that bad, not in a tree stand, not nothing, just literally ran a broadhead through the back of his leg. Damn. Yeah. And you know something though, you don't really get many second chances when you make a mistake like that. Yeah. I mean, you're only inches away from arteries that if you're not carrying something as simple as like a 25 or $30 tourniquet, I mean, you can try to occlude the, the, the bleeding, but you know, it's not going to, not going to work as well as carrying a, a purpose-driven tool. So right. it's like, if you, if you carry the tools to, to make holes and to make things bleed out, carry the tools to make yourself stop bleeding too, <laughs> right. you know, because you know, you don't want to be one of the, the statistics of self-inflicted wounds. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the second one, or I guess the third one that came to mind was I was hunting in Montana and I didn't really think about it that day. And I was talking to a buddy of mine about it the other day, cause he'd mentioned to me, you know, I guess the stats say you probably know better than either of us would that most hypothermic kind of cases aren't in really, really like sub-zero temperatures. It's actually in kind of like moderately cold, cool or cold temperatures and mm -hmm. someone not preparing to get wet, whether it's rain or they fell in something or whatever. Right. And that happened to me whenever I was in Montana, we were, we were hunting, we were pretty far away from the truck and supposed to rain that day. I had rain gear, but I just didn't take enough layers and I ended up, I mean, it was a monsoon and I got soaked. And we had a rendezvous point for the crew. And I was the first one kind of back there toward the end of the day. And I was just like shaking uncontrollably. Um, and it was one of those things where, you know, I was still probably four miles from the truck, you know, and I was like, all right. Uh, in hindsight, I was probably in like a worse situation than I thought about at the moment. But I was just like, all right, I need to figure out how to make a fire. So I found a tree with enough canopy that would keep me relatively dry and managed to find enough dry wood to kind of get something sparked and, and made a fire and was able to stay warm until everyone else got there and then got out. But that was one of those things where, I mean, I had stuff to make a fire and stuff like that, but I would have never thought leaving the truck that morning that that would have been the kind of the most important part of my day, I guess you would say. Yeah, I'll tell you, there's different types of cold, too. I mean, there's conduction cooling, you know, where you're sitting up against something cold, mm -hmm. whether it's like stone wall. Uh, you know, there's the immersion cooling, which is the scariest of all of them, you know, where you're actually underwater or part of your body is submerged. But then there's that cold that just sneaks up on you. Yeah. And that's usually the, re the result of like your garments are getting wet and the wind is blowing. Mm -hmm. You know, I worry more when I go out and say like 40 to 45, 50 degree weather that's kind of gray overcast and just, you know, drizzling rain. Um, I worry more about that than when it's negative five and there's fresh powder on the ground. Right. You know, like, yeah. like it, and, and that's just maybe the voice of experience here. But that type of cold, it sneaks up on you. and like you said, you, you don't expect it to happen until you can't reverse it easily, you know? And I mean, you easily, if you had some tools, like if you had a jet boil stone and you could put some warm liquids in you, maybe if you had like a spare puffy jacket, well, I mean, a puffy jacket, maybe a hundred, 200 bucks, a stove. And I mean, hell, you could even just put hot water in you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we're talking less than two or 300 bucks and you could save your, your bacon. Yeah. Um, but a lot of guys aren't willing to hunt with a backpack, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like carry yeah. the gear. 
Yeah. It, it, my buddy, I always said he was crazy, man. He, he lives out there. Um, he, he, he's, uh, well, he's not from, he's from Pennsylvania. He went to college in Montana and then just stayed. Um, mm. and he, uh, and that's who I was hunting with while I was out there and we would leave for a day trek. And I mean, you know, I'm a flatlander, so I'm going out there. I was, had no problem hunting with a backpack, you know, and I, I would carry enough water with me, a GPS, like, you know, something to make a fire. Like I was trying to be, you know, responsible. He leaves and he would like chug a bottle of water before we would leave, eat a donut and like take off. <laughs> And that would be wow. it, you know, like no compass, no GPS, no nothing. And I was always kind of like, he's kind of a mountain man, you know, but I was always in hindsight, I look back when I'm like, he was just crazy. Like <laughs> mountain man, nothing like that's like almost <laughs> absurd. Right. Right. Yeah. There, there's a handful of guys out there that are still like that, where it's like, man, you, you definitely were born like two millennia too late. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. He is not from this, this era is how I would, how I would uh, certainly classify him, man. I want to, I want to kind of change courses here and talk just about, mm-hmm. I guess, food, pre- food preparedness. And we're kind of slowly making, cause I'm going to, part of this chat is going to be very selfish that I want to talk about my time that I'm going to spend in grizzly country. Cause that's the one thing that's really been on my mind. Yes. Um, but the one thing I'm always kind of thinking about is, uh, food preparation, right? Not mm-hmm. just from a hunting perspective and stuff like that, but I think just generally speaking, cause I think folks got a real good dose of, uh, the possibility of scarcity over the course of the past two years. Right. And I think a lot of people think differently now about, you know, food being prepared and what you may have in storage or not have in storage. And so I was just curious, like, do you have a rule of thumb or do you, do you guys at, at Fieldcraft Survival have a rule of thumb of how much food should, should a family have or two people have to feel as though they are, you know, quote unquote prepared. All right. So let, let's look at the government perspective. Like the government will tell you that everyone should have 72 hours. Right. And that's the whole idea that most emergencies are going to resolve themselves in 72 hours. Uh, you know, people have this notion of, well, I'm going to bug out and I'm going to never come back to my house. And I've got this trailer hooked up with a year's worth of food supplies, or, you know, they've got these wild ideas. Well, I always tell people, if you can bug in as much as possible, because your house is probably the most uh, valuable asset that you own and you don't just want to walk away from it. And even if we're looking at a disaster, like a hurricane, the hurricane doesn't blow forever. You know what I mean? Like once it hits land, it loses its speed and it loses strength and eventually goes away. And then you have to rebuild. So on average, people will say at least 72 hours worth of food and water. But again, do you want to be prepared to be average? I don't. So it becomes optimistic to say, well, I'm going to have a year's worth of food. But then when you look at what is required to build up a year's worth of food, it becomes very expensive very quickly. So I always say, start with a small goal, get a week's worth of food and look at basic calories first, right? Average human being, 2000 calories. Again, don't be average get additional food because in an emergency you're probably working a little bit harder than just sitting around watching netflix right Right, so you probably want to have three to four thousand calories a day and also that caloric uh average is for say 72 degrees it's not for cold weather where you need more calories Mm. so i always say start with getting a week's worth of food then a month's worth and then three months six months and a year um start with your basics if you guys are looking for a great reference I'm not an LDS member, but I will tell you that online there is something called the LDS Preparedness Manual, and it is from the Mormon Church, and they have a whole outline of how to build up a year's worth of food, and it's a phenomenal resource. Um, 
you can vary up your food and how you store it. You can have some that's dry goods, you know, in in uh, 55 gallon buckets with uh, desiccant packs. You can have freeze dried food. You can have canned food. You can slowly do a can rotation where you, when you buy, say, a new can of black beans, you're making a thing of chili. Well, you put the new can in the very back and you use the can in the very front. Right. So you can slowly, slowly build up, uh, you know, a good supply of food, but then also realize you don't want to have all the same type of food because what are the things that kill food? Well, it's change in temperature, it's moisture, light, and it's exposure to air. So certain foods, you don't want to have just the big bulk foods that you have to constantly open up. You might want to have some individual serving packs. You might right. want to have some other stuff that kind of livens up your food as well, because there's a concept called food boredom. I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on just food and I'm a right. foodie. So I mean, <laughs> like I could, I could apply like that, that to that discussion, but right. Um, what we recommend is that you look at your family, you look at your, your dietary needs, and you really start asking the question, well, why do they recommend 2000 calories and why isn't it more? Why isn't it less? And shouldn't we have more in the winter? Like start asking good questions of your prep and it will get you to the best answer as opposed to just saying, well, this is the only way, right. you know, we always say that there's more knowledge in the questions you ask than the statements you make. Right. So there's a lot to be said about food prep. Right. And do you kind of take the same approach when you're kind of preparing for like a backcountry hunt or do you, or is it slightly different? It, it, it all depends. I mean, like I love carrying snacks with me. Um, I'm also someone who enjoys intermittent fasting and I find that I can go further on like a high fat, uh, lower carb diet. And that's just something I picked up from like Patrick Smith at Kafaru. Mm -hmm. Um, like the keto diet, there is something you said about having a fat based diet for yeah. performance. Um, and also intermittent fasting, right? I mean, once you get to a certain point, you realize how many calories you truly need. And you'll find that the fat-based diet doesn't require as much water to process uh, the dried foods into something that you can consume. Um, you still need to consume that water anyway for proper hydration, but it results in less weight that you have to carry. Yeah. Um, so I like, I like carrying different things with me in the backcountry. Um, I also believe in the reward system. So I'm not above carrying, you know, candy as a snack. Like right. I'm a junk, I'm a junkie for peanut butter. Oh, so me too, I'll man. Carry, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll carry peanut butter packets. I'll carry, if I'm doing like a canoe trip, I'll carry a whole jar of peanut butter. And I would be lying if I said I won't crush an entire jar of peanut butter in five days. You know, right. like I can destroy peanut butter. So uh, I, I like mixing it up. And then there's always part of me that wants to find food as I go. You know, mm -hmm. like, my mentor, Marty, was an edible and medicinal plants expert, and I have fun learning and practicing, you know, foraging off the land. And it's like, I will do the human grazing uh, schedule where if I find something, I'll stop and I'll eat and I'll keep moving. I'll stop and I eat and I keep and, and that's how, how man lived mm -hmm. thousands of years ago. So that's part of, of how I do it. I, I like the idea of packing food, but I also like the idea of finding it off the land. Right. Yeah. That's next level there, dude. I don't know that I could trust myself to do, to do that. Um, I, I have a feeling I would end up eating the wrong thing in having like a, uh, a, a beavis and butthead, uh, hallucinogenic kind of experience, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but man, you mentioned bug out earlier and that's mm -hmm. one of the thing that I was kind of curious about. Like what is, what is in your bug out bag? I mean, I, well, first off, I guess I'm imagining or assuming you have one. And if you do, what, what, what do you keep in that? 
So my bug out bag, you know, I really hate to disappoint people. It's not the one that looks all tactical and I'm not slinging an AR-15 over my shoulder and going book at Eli. Um, <laughs> although, although Denzel played a pretty badass character, yeah, right. the fight scenes were choreographed by uh, Inosanto. So um, I will tell you that that's not how I roll. In an urban environment, I mean, I'm in, I'm in Utah and there's strip malls everywhere. I know where I can get food. Uh, people are like, well, what's the best urban survival shelter? And I'm like, your clothes. <laughs> and they're like, well, why? And I'm like, well, if you put up a tent, now you're in a static location, huge profile, looks bizarre. You know, mm-hmm. your clothes, you can easily hide among the population in places where, you know, you can still find warmth. And if you really want to go next level, if you, got, if you want to read something that will blow your mind, look up what's called hobo code. Okay. And it's all about the codes that the, the vagabonds use to alert one another to, hey, this is a place where you can get in and it's warm. Here's fresh water. Here's a place where you can get a free meal. Like it's it's wild stuff. It's all over urban centers. Hmm. But uh, my blackout bag is pretty simple. It's basically extra food. It's a spare, uh, you know, layer to throw on. I do carry some toiletries in there because many times I'll have like a last minute trip I have to take where I'm going from work right to the airport, you know? And right. I carry the stuff in my bag to just get me through the day and get me uh, to another place. Um, my bug out bag includes cash, right? Cash is king. Yeah. And I know that, you know, you slip someone a 20, you get a lot of things from them, including a ride or, you know, you can get maybe, uh, you know, some local information or maybe you can sweeten up your, your uh, accommodations. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you never you never know. So I carry extra cash on me. Um, snacks again it's nothing too fancy and it's just the idea that could i take this somewhere and get away for 72 hours while something blows over here and i need it to blend into the local population so my bug out bag looks like a any bag that a kid would carry to high school um you know and it's just got extra stuff now does it have tools sure um but i'm not carrying them overtly everything is slick I, i don't want people to know my capabilities Right. Right. I think it's a great point. It's just like the idea that you, you want to be almost uh, a phantom, you know, that's it's completely un, unrecognizable or not, or not noticed. The one thing I think I heard Mike say this on a podcast somewhere, or maybe I was listening to the uh, Phil Crest survival, uh, survival podcast, but he was even talking about, and I'm thinking it was him. It might've been somebody else, but they were saying like, you know, even when they travel, say they're going to Boston for work or whatever. They'll even go as far as to take like a Boston Red Sox hat or a Bruins hat or something like that, just so they can kind of assimilate immediately when they get there. That way, it's not when you're at the deli counter getting something to eat that someone's going, hey, there's an out-of-towner standing right there. You know, just to kind of give the appearance that I belong here. That way, there's no like extra kind of recognition or anything like that. Do you kind of subscribe to kind of similar similar approach or similar philosophy? Yeah, especially when I travel internationally. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've gone to Mexico a couple times in the past few years for different work assignments, and I tend to dress in transit like a fisherman. You know, I will wear clothing that makes it look like I'm going on a fishing trip with my buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things when I go over to Europe, I try not to bring baseball caps um, if I'm going to certain places where Americans aren't welcome. Um, you know, because the baseball cap is a very American piece of apparel. Yeah. And I will bring like a wide brim hat instead that looks like. I could be from anywhere, right. you know? Yeah. Um, so I like that idea of blending into the local population. 
Um, there's some great information out there. Some good folks that are doing some stuff like uh, my buddy Brady Pasola has got what he calls the Gray Man Project, where he not only talks about the idea of blending in physically, but also how you can, you know, let your demeanor blend in, you know, like how you can talk like a local, how you can, I mean, he's, he's going into some, some in-depth categories here, but it's a very, very good idea. And let's think about this, getting back to the whole idea of the hunter. Mm-hmm. We all know as hunters, there are certain populations where you can say, oh, I'm going out this weekend. I'm going to go kill something. Mm-hmm. And guess what? People are going to pat you on the back. But I know as a former teacher, if I said that in front of my class, oh my gosh, yeah. I would have been brought down to the administration and I, I traumatized you know, the, these young kids in my class. So you have to read the room. You know, and sometimes people are a little tone deaf to those around them. And I get it. Like as hunters, we don't want to give up any more rights than we've already given up. We don't want to have anyone have any ammunition against us. I know some hunting organizations say don't put up uh, any deadheads. You know, I know other hunting organizations say, well, we want to show the hunter, not the not the kill. Some will say, well, did you kill something or did you harvest it? And it's right. already a, it's a, it's a huge divide. Yeah, I always say just understand the room and don't be tone deaf, you know? So whether you're a hunter, you're a traveler, you're just someone who's negotiating a Christmas party or, you know, a family reunion, like know who's around you before you open up your mouth or do something that's going to get into hot water. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny that you, that you mentioned that cause I go as far as to even, I don't have anything on my truck that would, that would say, suggest that I'm a, I'm a hunter. I don't have anything on my truck truck that would suggest that I have a hunting podcast. Like, you know, I have a little, travel trailer that i built um six by ten cargo trailer that i gutted and uh outfitted with uh solar power and like propane heat that i basically do all my diy traveling hunt travel hunts in um and that just looks like a piece of garbage trailer that is completely <laughs> nondescript right it's in its mauve right, it's right. purple <laughs> so it's the it's the least manly kind of trailer on the road you know and people are always like why don't you like put the podcast stuff on it or whatever and i'm like because i don't want anyone to know where i'm at you know i was like especially if I find a honey hole, I was like, I don't want to broadcast that that's where I'm at. You know, um, I try to just kind of fit in as, as much as possible and, and get bothered as, as little as possible when I'm on those trips. Yeah. And, and that whole idea of operational security, you, you don't have to be someone like my boss, Mike, who, you know, operated over in, you know, different parts of the world where, you know, it, it would be life or death. But again, it's, it goes back to second and third order of effects. It's like, yes, yeah, so you want to put up your support for, you know, your firearms company or a scope company or, you know, whatever. But what happens when someone breaks into your vehicle, right? Windows are only there to keep out good people. Right. And there are plenty of people out there that will break a window just to get your change cup. Right. So don't, I always tell people like, yes, your vehicle is supposed to be um, like a sanctuary for your gear. Like we tend to think of it that way, but don't put anything in your vehicle. You're not willing to say, I'm okay saying goodbye to and replace. Um, always get lockable storage containers, lock them into your car, um, because someone will break into your vehicle, you know, and if you have anything that is, uh, you know, something that you, you look back on, you're like, man, I would never want to part with this. Probably want to put that up on your shelf and get something that you are willing to part with. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right, man. I want to pivot now to the selfish part of the podcast. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> so, uh, getting ready to do a backcountry hunt headed to uh northern idaho so i've been west uh elk hunting you know bow hunting in the past 
Um, really looking forward to getting back out to the mountains and just, you know, I, I love that part of the country. It's just, it's, it's grueling, it's challenging, it's tough. And then you get to see a lot of critters that you don't get to see on the East coast. So I'm super stoked for it. However, this is the first trip that I'm making that I'll be doing, uh, basically, you know, camping under, not under the stars. We'll have, you know, tents and stuff like that, but then I'll basically be doing overnights in predator country. So grizzlies, mountain lions, wolves, you know, et, et cetera. So where do you start in terms of preparing to specifically kind of spend nights in areas where you know you're going to be in and around, you know, various apex predators? Wow. So this is this is a big topic here. I mean, there's a lot to consider, but if you break it down to the, the simple concepts of force timing and space, right? We call it fight math, you will understand what you need to do, right? So let's put it this way: mountain lion, pack of wolves, bear. They have way more force than we do. Um, what we have as an advantage is we can give them space and we can also distract them long enough to get to a point of safety or to the tools that we need to eliminate their level of force or to match their level of force or exceed it with firearms or whatever. So the way I always explain it to people is, okay, you need to realize what is going to attract an animal to you. It's going to be your food. It's going to be your camp. You need to make sure that you are not sleeping nearby a food source. You are not cross-contaminating. You are putting food far from where you're camping uh, because that will automatically distract them from being interested in you. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're going to an area that's high traffic, people will often say, well, if you light a fire, animals don't like smoke and animals won't come into camp. But if it's high traffic, Animals can be conditioned, they can be trained to realize that if there's campfire, there might be food at that campfire and they will come in. Mm -hmm. You need to identify what is in your immediate area when you camp. Not a bad idea to drop your pack and to scout around and look for sign on the ground. Not just the tracks of the animal that you think will be there, but also the sign. And what I mean by the sign and the, the ground sign, I'm referring to things that they're leaving behind, but then I'm also referring to the aerial sign which could be scratches on trees. It could be hair that's left over on, on branches as they walk through. Um, it could be any number of, of representations that that animal is there, right? Um, another thing that I always tell people is be very careful of water. Don't camp nearby water because it's white noise that will play mm -hmm. tricks with your mind at night. And when they, people say don't camp near water, often people think it's for the water safety, like, oh, don't pollute the water. It's actually for yours. And there's a reason why in Vietnam, you know, the soldiers that camped in Vietnam, fought in Vietnam, bivouacked in Viet Vietnam, they didn't camp near water because they couldn't hear the Viet Cong crossing. So you don't want to camp in a location where your senses are deprived. So I would say stay away from water. Yeah, you might want to wake up and go fishing, but hike to that fishing location and realize that there are animals in that fishing location that might attract the bear. So yet another reason why you don't want to camp there right um so there's a lot of things that you can do you just have to realize that if you can maintain space between you and the animal you're doing fine if you can build in some type of timing whether carrying bear spray um i know some folks that go as so far as to bring a portable electronic fence to mm -hmm. put around them not it's not unreasonable right um we actually just interviewed a guy named dan bigley who was attacked by a bear in Alaska and he survived. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's amazing perspective that he had. He did everything right. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, we can do everything that we we want properly and something bad could still happen. But generally, if you are keeping your food separate, if you're looking for signs that are animals there, if you are, um, you know, respecting their space, then chances are you're not going to encounter them. Um, and like I said, don't camp near water. Uh, try it sometime, and I guarantee you're going to have weird dreams. You're going to swear you hear someone walking around outside, and no one's going to be there. Um, so yeah, so that's that's one of my bits of advice right there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm even just thinking of you know bow hunting next to like a, a stream for whitetails. It's just it's maddening for the whole day because I can't hear. Like I, you know, I have some cover sound, so I get away with a little bit more, but that deer is also not going to kill me, you know? So it's right, you know, but it's frustrating because I can't hear them coming either. So I'm having to rely on just my eyes essentially, which makes for a a really long hunt and a really tiring hunt, you know, whenever you're only able to use one of your senses essentially. Yeah. I'll tell you real quick. Uh, in 2016, I did a float trip in Alaska in, uh, the North, North slope of the Brooks range. And I wrote an article uh, about the trip for Recoil Magazine about like camping in dangerous bear country and uh, dangerous game country. And uh, I said, one of the things that we did up there, we had these uh, action packers from Rubbermaid, Hmm. you know, we put them in the raft. We had food that we had in there. We put rocks on top. Oh my God. The the internet had trolls galore and they're like, oh my God, that's so ridiculous. Why would they put their action packers uh, there? Why don't they put them up in a tree? And it's like, okay, there's no tall trees in the Arctic, right? right? <laughs> and what we did, we had it far, far from our tent. And that was really there just to alert us that there was something in camp, oh. right? So it's funny, like you, you have to understand the context, like even having something that makes noise will let you know if there's something outside your tent. I'm not a fan of sleeping with, uh, like if your tent is a convertible tent with a mesh door and a solid nylon door, I don't like sleeping with the nylon door because I want that awareness to be able to look out that mesh and see if there's anything there. Right. Um, so I would say, you know, as long as you are doing what you can to increase your awareness and not do ridiculous things to impede it, you're going to probably create a, a bubble of safety. That's not going to burst. Right. Are you, let me ask this way, fan of bear spray sidearm or both? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, there's a, there's a reason. Okay. Now, if you travel, if you travel to certain places and you discharge a firearm in, it's a questionable defensive life or property, a dole up case, Mm -hmm. um, you're probably going to face serious, serious fines. Right now I've been hiking in Glacier national park, high, high wind. And I've seen people with bear spray saying, Oh, I'm okay. I've got bear spray. It's like, you clearly have never experienced a secondary exposure to chemical sprays right right, right. Like, that is going to do nothing in high wind um i love the idea of carrying a handgun for self-defense primarily for for you know the two-legged critters but four-legged critters there are plenty of cases of 10 millimeter stopping big animals with good shot placement then and there's also great cases of one or two good shots with a larger bore firearm and then quite honestly the best defense you have if you're rifle hunting is your hunting rifle i mean your your handgun is ch- chances are will never exceed the skin elasticity the velocity needed to create these massive wounds but a rifle will a shotgun with slugs will so i like having options um i know that bear spray people are like oh i paid 50 bucks for it and you know now uh 
you know, I paid 50 bucks and now I've got to leave it at the airport if I'm flying. Well, Dude, whatever. It's, 50, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an insurance policy, man, you right. know, pass it off to, you know, the next hunter. And believe it or not, a lot of places have a uh, bear spray rental. I was just going to um, say, I, I know that there's places my buddy was telling me where you can literally just go pick some up that someone dropped off because they didn't use it. You know? Yeah, which I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I'd be, I don't know that my, I would let my life rely on someone, something someone dis- discarded, but. <laughs> but. It, it, exactly. So, so yeah, the answer is I, they're both really good options, but you have to understand their limitations. You have to understand when one is going to work for you and one, when one is going to be the better option. Like I said, yeah. I don't want to go on a beautiful vacation, pull out a handgun, fire around. Let's say that, you know, just discharging the gun into the ground is what scares the animal away. Well, now I just discharge a firearm where I'm not supposed to, you know, be doing that. And I face a $5,000 fine. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'll pass. Yeah. So well, that's where the bear spray comes in. Here. Yeah. I think I'll be carrying both. I just picked up a new sidearm specifically for the, for the trip. So I'm just going to, what would you end up getting? I ended up getting a uh, compact uh, 40 uh, Smith and Wesson 44 Magnum. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. The mountain gun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was, uh, I kind of wanted one for a while, uh, just to add to my, my gun collection. Cause it's a gun that I've kind of wanted. Um, yeah. and then whenever this hunt came up, you know, I was like, all right, well, here's an opportunity. You know, it's, I need something, you know, bigger caliber than what I currently have that I'd be comfortable with. Um, so I picked that up and killer gun. So, so, so two accessories that I would recommend for that. Mm-hmm. Number one, get Buffalo bore heavy outdoorsman ammo. It's 300 grain hard cast ammo it's not designed to mushroom it's yep. just designed to penetrate yep. and tim sundles who runs buffalo boar has tested that so much it's that's the only stuff i carry when i when i carry my 44. yep um the other thing get yourself uh an outback holster from black point tactical okay you can use my last name as a discount code. Okay, this cool. is not a this is not a plug but you can use it and they usually will take care of the folks that that i refer Cool. Um, because you don't want to have to fight your garments to get that gun out. And this thing just keeps it dead center of your chest. Um, and whether you're hunting hot weather or cold weather, the narrow straps aren't super hot against the body and it holds the gun comfortably. So awesome. get that thing. And it's so, so fast on the target too. Awesome. What about, what is your bare minimum med kit for backcountry hunting? Uh, tourniquet, uh, chest seal some type of wound packing, um, and usually some type of tape. Uh, okay. that's, that's bare minimum. Now what that will address are injuries to the extremities, uh, that will address like a puncture wound to the chest. And that will allow me to pack the junctures of my body. So armpits and, and pelvic cavity. Um, but I really hope I never have to do wound packing on myself. I've never had to do it to anyone else, mm-hmm. but all of our trainers who have said you're you're basically causing someone a lot of pain in order to save their life mm-hmm. um but i'm also realizing that i'm hunting with friends where i might be doing that to them and they may not have the willingness to carry that gear themselves right so you know i don't mind uh the idea of carrying a boo-boo kit um that's a smart idea to address simple injuries like a corneal abrasion can be very painful so maybe carry like a, a protective eye cup mm. um you know, there are some other things that can be really annoying. Uh, Ben's silver grippers, the tick tweezers are great for pulling briars out or removing ticks. Um, and then I always tell people this, if you have to carry one type of antibiotic into the field, carry an ophthalmolic antibiotic, something that you can use in your eyes, because you can apply that to your eye or you can apply it to anywhere else on your body, but you can't use traditional 
triple antibiotic or, um, you know, those, uh, you know, neosporin type creams in your eyes. Mm -hmm. So if you get an eye injury, you're screwed. So right. carry what carry a eye antibiotic yeah. and you can use it anywhere on your body. Yeah. Right. Vision key. <laughs> Gen exactly. Generally yeah. speaking. Uh, go to water filtration system or chlorine tabs. What's your, what's your preference uh, there? I, I love boiling water. Not always a, a possibility. Um, I've used aqua tabs a mm -hmm. lot lately and they're recommended by the world health organization. They're relatively inexpensive and, you know, granted MP1 tablets like, uh, uh MP1 tablets are really fantastic, but they take about four hours to fully work. The MP, uh, the aqua tabs are great for a tablet based system. But if I have to carry one type of water purification, I'm carrying Aquamira Drops, the two-part system, and that makes water ready to drink in about a half hour as well. Oh wow, nice. Well, brother, I know you got to get going. I know you have an event you got to you got to boogie to. Uh, before I let you get out of here, if you wouldn't mind, let folks out there listening know where they can find out more about you, where they can listen to what you have going on, and where they can learn more about Fieldcraft Survival. Yeah, so I'll I'll just simply say this: uh, you guys can find me uh, on Instagram. My last name is uh, Estella, so E-S-T-E-L-A. And then my Instagram handle is Estella Wild Ed, which is short for Estella Wilderness Education, the company I had before I joined Fieldcraft. So Instagram is Estella Wild Ed. You guys can find me uh, pretty much at all the Fieldcraft events. Uh, I do a lot of stuff for the company. Uh, www.fieldcraftsurvival.com is where you can read my survival blog. You can find out about upcoming training events. Uh, you can read my book, 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. It's on Amazon, the sign copy of Fieldcraft. Uh, you can find me in a whole bunch of magazine articles. Um, just type in my last name and, you know, the word author or writer, and you'll find a whole bunch of free stuff. And I'm always open to answering questions. So if you guys ever have a question, please reach out to me on social media, email uh, Estella at FieldcraftSurvival.com. Happy to answer any questions. Um, and I encourage all of you guys to keep training and, and keep leveling up. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I might have to pick your brain on some BJJ stuff as I as I continue going. But I appreciate you coming on. Have an awesome season uh, uh, this this upcoming fall, and uh, I know you will. But stay prepared. You got it, brother. Thanks so much. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Spartan Forge, Exodus, and Skull Brew Coffee Company. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.